Hello, and welcome back to the Formal Review. Today, we'll be having a very special episode. Now sit back, maybe grab a drink, and let's talk about this movie. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Formal Review. This is Season 3, Episode 40, and I thank you all for tuning in once again. So this episode will be twofold. The first part is going to be a retrospective review of the Godfather films, and then the second part will be a review of the new cut of the third film, The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. So in this cut, Coppola created a new beginning and a new ending and rearranged some scenes, shots, and some music cues. And this is, in his words, a more appropriate conclusion to the first two godfather films so being a big fan of the saga overall i knew i had to check this new cut of the film out and then talk about some of the greatest films ever made i'm also going to be going into a few updates to my movie collection so stay tuned now before i get into anything no, I talk about this at the end, but the data shows that most people skip over that part. <laughs> so I do want to reiterate the importance of leaving reviews on your favorite podcast service because those reviews really help me grow and improve. A lot of you have talked to me offline, but I do really appreciate the reviews that already are out there. If everyone could just continue doing that or letting me know any way that you think that I could grow and make this more entertaining, feel free and I'll look at them and I'll grow as such. Anyway, now once again, I want to give a shout out to Movie Matrix. I was involved with their holiday movie draft, which also was a lot of fun, even though I showed up a little late for that. But I think I chose some good holiday movies, though. It looks like at this point, I'm not going to go very far again. But I still am proud of my choices. Check them out. They have a down the rabbit hole movie podcast talking about news and stuff. So definitely gracious to them for allowing me to come on and collaborate with them. So shout out to them. Please go check them out on YouTube. So I got three new films to add to my collection that were we're not part of the Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales. I just found really good deals on them at a separate price. So the first one is Logan. So this includes both the color and the noir black and white version of the film, which I do think is a superior film on their own 4K discs. And they've been created from an original 4K digital intermediate. So the film's original shooting resolution was between a 2.8K and a 3.2K, and then it was upscaled to 4K in post-production. Sometimes with films that don't have a absolutely pure 100% 4K heritage, there is not as much sharpness in the close-up camera work. I'm not really sure how this one will look. We'll see when I watch it. I am excited to re-watch this movie, especially the noir version, as it is, in my opinion, one of the best single superhero films ever made. Both versions of the film come with Adobe Atmos track, which is an upgrade from the 7.1 DTS HD Master, and that is a visual upgrade from the Blu-ray and also the audio upgrade, so this was definitely worth upgrading just a little bit. Audio, generally like a 7.1, is going to sound very decent no matter what it is but Dolby Atmos is more advanced and frankly that's what I really really love when it comes to movies especially now when Warner Brothers releasing that the version of Wonder Woman 1984 that they're going to be releasing on HBO Max is going to be the first 4k with Dolby Vision Dolby Atmos and all the great things about home media on their streaming service now as a quick sidebar Wonder Woman I'm excited that I'll be able to see it now will it actually be true 4k it's hard to say 
mostly because of internet speeds. Again, like as I've said on multiple episodes, internet is a big part of what streaming services get 4K. HBO Max has not released any specific number that would say what internet you need to get 4K content. Now, in comparison to Netflix, they're not charging you an extra fee to get 4K. I mean, they haven't had 4K prior to this, so I'm a little unsure of how they're going to be doing that. They haven't really released very much, so I'm a little hesitant. And similar with the sound, getting full Dolby Atmos, yeah, it may be nice, but there may be something that I'm missing because of the streaming. And especially when it's a movie like this that I'm honestly thinking that HBO Max may crash on Christmas Day when everybody and their mother watches this because, I mean, this is one of the biggest movies that was supposed to come out this year and with how good Wonder Woman was and how many people love that, frankly, HBO Max hasn't had that much of an influx. I mean, I know HBO had issues when Game of Thrones was releasing, so, I mean, I guess they've had practice from that, but who actually knows? And so we'll see what happens there. Anyway, so going back to my movie collection, so the other movie that I purchased was Glory, which is the 1989 Civil War film starring Anthony Broderick, Denzel Washington, Carrie Hughes, Morgan Freeman. And what's really great about this movie is that it was filmed on 35 millimeter. So this is true 4K. And this is one of my favorite Denzel Washington performance. I mean, it is the one that won his award for Best Supporting Actor, his first Academy Award. So I'm actually really excited to watch this film eventually, especially with the Dolby Atmos track. I think that's going to be really, really fantastic. And the last film that I got on 4K this past time was Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice, the Ultimate Edition. Now, for those people who do hate this movie and haven't seen the Ultimate Edition, I stress to you that this version of the movie is much, much better than the theatrical cut. Yes, it still has problems. There is, I think, too much going on in the film to be a cohesive story, but it still, I think, has a lot of really great moments in it. And frankly, for me, those moments are just so much fun. The theatrical cut was 151 minutes. The Ultimate Edition is 183 minutes. That's 30 minutes of extra footage. And honestly, if you cut that amount of footage that is important to the story, it ends up being a poorer film, which, I mean, has been shown on multiple occasions. So I would suggest everyone watch this film at least once, and then you can make your decision on the actual version of the film, because frankly, the theatrical cut isn't the actual version of the movie. So this was filmed on 35 millimeter, but also used a digital camera in 3.4K and also IMAX camera. It did have a 4K digital intermediate, so it is similar to Logan in that fashion. The main difference, and this is something I noticed also on the Blu-ray, is that you still have the black bars above and below the film's image in comparison to Nolan's use of IMAX when he covers up the entire screen. And from what I've been reading, it's the same on the 4K. Now, the Blu-ray version also had a Dolby Atmos track, so that's not really an audio upgrade. But honestly, when it comes to certain films, a 4K version is just worth an upgrade. But honestly, for me, the reason why I was able to upgrade for this was because I found a sale on eBay for the Zavi exclusive steelbook. Now, I'm not a steelbook person, but the steelbook for this movie just looks so dope that I had to get it. And I was just looking for the right sale and I found one and it just looks like the Batman comic book, The Dark Knight Returns. I think it just looks so cool. And with a movie that has some of the two most famous comic book characters of all time, I couldn't resist. Luckily, I did find a sale on it. Then the obvious addition to my collection is the movie that I'm going to talk about in this episode. Now on to the movies at hand. So let's sit back, relax, grab your drinks, and let's discuss these movies.
Now, before I talk about the movie specifically, it is going to be heavy with spoilers because these films have been out for a while and this new version to really discuss why I think it's honestly better. I need to go into spoilers. So if you care about that, I would definitely stop now, go watch the version of the film and then come back and hear what I have to say about it. But if you don't care about that, keep listening. So let's go back to 1969 when Mario Puzo first published his novel, The Godfather. This novel detailed the story of a fictional mafia family in New York City and also Long Beach, New York, headed by Vito Corleone. It covers the years from 1945 to 1955 and provides the backstory of Vito Corleone from his early childhood to adulthood. And this novel remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 67 weeks and sold over 9 million copies in two years. Large parts of the novel are based on reality, notably the history of the so-called five families, the mafia organization New York, and the surrounding areas. The novel also included many allusions to real-life mobsters and their associates. For example, Johnny Fontaine is actually based on Frank Sinatra, and Mo Green is based on Bugsy Siegel. In addition, the character of Vito Corioni was a mix of crime bosses Frank Costello and Carlo Gambino. If you're a big enough fan, I would definitely say you'd get something out of the book. I read it years ago prior to seeing the film for the first time, but if you only see the movies, here's what you're missing from the book. The book goes into more details about specific operations that are carried out and how complex and how manipulative that the families are. And this is somewhat referenced in the movies, but it's not a lot. I think also the book describes the lengths that these families have to do to set up meetings between the heads of the rival family. There's this elaborate system that they have to trade hostages, which obviously the movies don't have time to show. The novel also includes the book also goes into more detail about how Vito used Luca Brasi. My father went to see this band, only this time with Luca Brasi. Within an hour, my father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And there's other subplots in the novel that aren't really about the main story. Either way, though, I would say the book is worth your so time if you back, haven't relax, read it. Relax, so grab your years drinks, and Paramount Pictures obtain the rights to the movies. novel for the price of $80,000. Francis Ford Coppola was brought on to direct. The musical score was composed mainly by Nino Rota with additional pieces also composed by Carmine Coppola, who is Francis Ford Coppola's father. The film obviously stars Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, James Caan, Richard Castellano, Robert Duvall, Sterling Hayden, John Marley, Richard Conte, and Diane Keaton. It's obviously the first installment in the Godfather trilogy. The story starts in 1945 and goes through 10 years, chronicling the Corleone family under the patriarch, Vito Corleone, played by Brando, focusing on the transformation of one of his sons Michael Corleone played by Pacino from a reluctant family outsider to the ruthless mafia boss. And I'll go into that in a little bit. But this film was released in the US on March 24th, 1972 and it was the highest grossing film of 1972 and earned between 246 and 287 million dollars at the box office. Which if you take inflation into account that's about 1.8 billion dollars. So The Godfather acted as a catalyst for the successful careers of Coppola, Pacino and it revitalized Brando's career. After this film, Brando would actually go on to star in Last Tango in Paris, Superman, and Apocalypse Now. As I'm sure
sure a lot of you know, the film has received universal acclaim from critics and audiences with praise for the performances, specifically those of Brando and also Pacino. It also has been critically acclaimed for the directing, screenplay, cinematography, editing, score, and portrayal of the mafia. On Rotten Tomatoes today, the film holds a 98% approval rating based on 99 critic reviews with an average rating of 9.32 out of 10. The critic consensus reads, quote, one of Hollywood's greatest and critical commercial successes. The Godfather gets everything right. Not only did the movie transcend expectations, it established new benchmarks for American cinema, end quote. It also has a 98% audience score after 734,000 ratings. Metacritic gave this film 100 out of 100 based on 15 critic reviews. At the 45th Academy Awards, the film won Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actor for Brando, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Puzo and Coppola. In addition, it received seven other nominations, which included three for Best Supporting Actor for Pacino, Khan, and Duvall, and also Coppola for Best Director. Since its release, it has been widely regarded as one of the greatest and most influential films ever made, especially in the gangster genre. It was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry of the Library of Congress in 1990, being deemed, quote, culturally, historically, or anesthetically significant, end quote. And it is ranked as the second greatest film in American cinema behind Citizen Kane by the American Film Institute. So what can I say about this movie that's different from what everyone else thinks? It's an amazing film that is in a style that really isn't done anymore. Pacino is great in all of these films, and Marlon Brando is fantastic in the first ones, and the second film has a great performance by Robert De Niro, and many other things that I went over are really great about this film. The direction is superb, but the best part of it, in my opinion, is the writing. I mean, how many lines are used in real life today? How many lines of this movie can you listeners quote? And then, how many are referenced in other mediums across the years? The Godfather is the I Ching. The Godfather is the sum of all wisdom. The Godfather is the answer to any question. What should I pack for my summer vacation? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. What day of the week is it? Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, Saturday. The answer to your question, you're at war. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. At the end of the day, though, these films succeed because of their tragic story. It's a story of a man who started out as an American war hero who wanted very little to do with his family, transforming into the leader of his family. From early on, the film foreshadows this transformation. The opening scene has a man pleading with Don Corleone, played by Brando, to hurt some men out of justice for his daughter. I went to the police like a good American. These are the boys who were brought to trial. The judge sentenced them to three years in prison and suspend the sentence. They went free that very day. They smiled at me. Why did you go to the police? Why didn't you come to me first? What do you want of me? Tell me anything. But do what I beg you to do. That I cannot do. I can't remember the last time that you invited me to your house for a cup of coffee. Even though my wife is godmother to your only child. You never wanted my friendship. You were afraid to be in my debt. I didn't want to get into trouble. I understand. I had a good trade, made a good living. Police protected you and there were courts of law. But you didn't need a friend like me. But now you come to me and you say, Don Corleone, give me justice. But you don't ask with respect. You don't even think to call me Godfather. What have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? Be my friend. Someday, I'll call upon you to do a service for me. 
But uh, until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding day. Grazie. Grazie. Give this to uh, Clemenza. I want reliable people, people that aren't going to be carried away. I mean, we're not murderers. So in this moment, he is calm, but powerful. He doesn't get emotional. He's also stroking this really cute cat at the beginning of it. And what's really interesting about this is that this cat was actually a stray that Coppola found on the movie lot during filming. Then he added the cat into the scene because he believed that it would show Vito Corioni's soft side. And because he's stroking it while deciding who should live and who should die. This wasn't something that they planned to do. It wasn't in the script. It was just a last-minute decision and you can kind of see it in this scene because the cat is moving all about but this adds to that level to Vito's compassion towards small animals and you can't be a ruthless killer if you care for the people who are beneath you I mean it also may be the fact that it's my daughters to be married and amidst all the singing and dancing going on at this wedding Coppola shows the audience a couple the couple sitting away from all the celebrations and one of them is telling the other about his family through this, the audience introduced more to the Corleone family. We learn how much power they have by able to start one of their own's career in acting. How? Well, when Johnny was first starting out, he was signed to this personal service contract from the big band leader. And as his career got better and better, he wanted to get out of it. Now, Johnny is my father's godson. And my father went to see this band leader. And he offered him $10,000 to let Johnny go. But the band leader said no. And within an hour... He signed a release for a certified check of $1,000. How did he do that? Luca Brazzi held a gun to his head, and my father assured him that either his brains or his signature would be on the contract. That's a true story. This is Michael Corioni. Michael is a Marine during World War II who seemingly has a high sense of morality. He assures his girlfriend that he is not what his family is. That's my family, kid. It's not me. Even so, he is shown to be the most important member of the family. When they're about to take a family photo, Don Corioni demands that his youngest son be there or they aren't taking it. The film then shows the other two brothers. You have Sonny, who is an emotional brother who tries to stop people from investigating his family before real that they're FBI. Coppola then introduces us to Frito, who is drunk at the party. While it is a wedding, this is purposeful. Based on the male-oriented nature of this family, we know which one of them is going to take over for Don Coglione. Based on the film's introduction of each one, which one do you think it is? It's interesting to show how the youngest son is the most important and is the most level-headed, similar to his old man. And this theme is consistently shown over the course of the movie. Michael is shown to be calm when his brothers are shown to be emotional and pretty much helpless. Sonny speaks his mind when he shouldn't and Frito doesn't do a thing. This is the tragic downfall of Michael into the tragic world of crime and violence. At the beginning of the film, he is young and is in love with his girlfriend Kay played by Diane Keaton and again wants nothing to do with this family's business. But what can change a person? Tragedy. When the Corleones meet with Virgil Solozo to discuss Corleone's cooperation in protecting the rival Tatalia family because of their interest of getting started in trafficking heroin, Corleone declines as he thinks getting involved with narcotics would destroy his political connections and his reputation. Everything seems fine after leaving this meeting, but Corleone sends Luca Brazzi to double check on things. Brazzi is then killed, which comes as a shock to the audience because in this scene, all of the characters are 
calmly talking to one another. When all of a sudden, a knife is brought out and stabs Brazi's hand right into the countertop. Copa then shows the audience how horrific it is by focusing on Brazi's hand when the knife goes through it and emphasizes his face. You see how his eyes react to getting choked. Through this, Coppola is saying that the power that the Corleones have can be taken away. The following scene shows Don Corleone shopping in an outdoor market, purchasing fruit with his back to the camera. The audience knows something bad is going to happen. He's then ambushed and shot up until he falls to the ground. And the scene is done, interestingly, way less graphic than pretty much every other violent scene in the movie. This allows the audience to experience more of an emotional effect of this attempt on his life. He is the first Corleone that the audience sees. He is this compassionate man. So when we see him getting shot in a non-graphic way, we'll feel sad and then feel hopeful when we're told that he will make it through. So when he's in the hospital, we see another scene where Michael is shown to be calm. This scenario involves another attempt on his father's life. He recognizes the situation almost instantly and asks the nurse what happened. Where are the guards? Then he calls his brother Sonny to let him know. Then he moves his father to another room. He then gets the baker who comes to visit Don Corleone in the hospital to pretend that he has a gun and then does his non-first civilian act. He acts as a guard for his father. Also, during this scene, and this bit is immensely important to Michael's eventual downfall, he whispers to his sleeping father, I here, Bob. I'll take care of you now. I'm with you now. Vito awakens, sees him, and then smiles. In the next scene, we see how emotional the Corleone sons are toward their father's shooting. Sonny is willing to go to the mattresses. Frito looks for a drink to have, while Michael keeps his cool again, but steps up to be involved. He comes up with the entire plan to get revenge on the attempt on his father's life. Even then, he's laughed at and is told that he's acting out. But then he comes up with another idea of using the press to their advantage. He then takes care of Solozzo and McCluskey as per his plan. He then goes to Italy to hide out while Sonny runs the family business. Now, Michael, while he's in Italy with Less Stressful, he's still being this kind of calm person. When there's a miscommunication regarding a woman that he's interested in, when they're talking to her father, he calmly talked him down. But then we get back to America and we see how Sonny is running things. It's all based on emotions. He always is willing to show how strong he is with violence. Tom, played by Duvall, advises against a lot of his decisions. It may help when his sister Connie, played by Talia Shire, is being abused by her husband Carlo because Sonny beats up Carlo, warns him that if he touches his sister again, he will kill him. However, his emotions then are used against him when he finds out that Carlo is abusing Connie again. Sonny goes to kill him, but when Sonny is at a toll booth on the way, he is ambushed and shot to death in an extremely violent way. His death devastates Vito even when he disagreed with his motives. Look on the mask of my boy. He now is realizing that the Talias are now the most powerful family. So he attempts to end the feud. He then brings together the five families and tells them that he will no longer oppose them being involved with the heroin business and won't seek revenge for Sonny's murder. Now, Michael is able to return home safely. With Vito ending the near end of his life and Frito is staying in Vegas hiding out and is drinking a lot, Michael starts being in charge of the business. He then sends Tom to join Frito 
Cerrito in Vegas to keep their businesses above water, but when he visits and tries to buy out Mo Green's stake in the family casinos, he sees that Frito is more loyal to Green than his own family. You don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that! Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Vito then suffers a fatal heart attack and at the funeral, Michael meets with Barzini. Michael then tells his people that this shows that Barzini is a traitor, but he already knew it because Vito actually told Michael in confidence before his death. He then sets up this meeting, but it's on the same day as the christening of his sister's child where he is going to be the godfather to the child. But in this scene, he's also becoming the godfather to us, the audience. As the christening proceeds, each of the heads of the rival families are killed and this shows the power that Michael now has. Do you renounce Satan? Michael can be doing something completely different but has the control to handle business while doing something so pure as a christening. And all his works It's quite ironic that he has such a high stake in his family, but also how the family business takes over his life. Michael Ritchie, will you be baptized? In nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Michael Ritchie, go in peace and may the Lord be with you. And then lies to Kay about his family business when he used to tell her everything. This one time I let you ask me about my affairs. Is it true? Michael has now become the leader and assumes all responsibility that his father had. He is now Don Corleone. So following the success of this movie, there was a clear demand for a sequel. Coppola though was hesitant to return due to him in the studio clashing. The director and Paramount clashed on everything from casting to production delays and producers strongly considered replacing him even midway through filming. So when it came time to direct part two, Coppola wanted no part in the sequel and even suggested Barnes Corsetti to be his successor. But Paramount executives rejected this. Then Coppola was given more creative control so he became the director. He then started to develop both both a sequel and somewhat of a prequel to the story of the rise of Vito and the fall of Michael. The Godfather Part 2 was then released on December 20th, 1974. Talk about a Christmas movie. Initially, some said that it was superior to the first film and some dismissed it completely. They said it had fantastic cinematography and acting, but it was also overly slow paced and convoluted. It grossed between 48 and 88 million dollars worldwide on a 13 million dollar budget. The film was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and became the first sequel to win Best Picture. Its six Oscar wins also included Best Director for Coppola, Best Supporting Actor for De Niro, and Best Adapted Screen fave for Coppola and Puzo. Pacino was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor and it was the first film sequel to win Best Picture and it remained the only film to ever do that until The Lord of the Rings The Return of the King in 2003. Interestingly, Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro are the only two actors ever to win separate Oscars for playing the same character. In the part two, De Niro plays the young Vito Corleone and Brando won Best Actor for his part in the first film. So in 1997, the American Film Institute ran 
ranked it as the 32nd greatest film in American film history and it has retained this position pretty much since. It was selected also for preservation in the US National Film Registry of the Library of Congress in 1993 being deemed again culturally historically or aesthetically significant. On Rotten Tomatoes, it holds a 98 approval rating based on 83 critic reviews with an average score of 9.64 out of 10. It also has a 97% audience score based on a little over 411,000 user reviews. The consensus reads, quote, drawing on strong performances of Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, Francis Ford Coppola's contribution to Mario Puzo's Mafia Saga set new standards for sequels that have yet to be matched or broken, end quote. Metacritic also gives it a 90 out of 100 based on 18 critic reviews, which indicate universal acclaim. Now the debate is if this film is actually superior to the first film. I honestly go back and forth between the two because on this rewatch, I really felt that the first film was superior and because it's able to tell such a good story that honestly, you don't need the sequel to tell the overall story. And this film supports it in the best way. So this is seriously one of the best sequels of all time. But there are some days where I do think that second film is superior to the first film. It really depends on what you are really looking for in a movie. Because this film is able to do something that the first film didn't and that's essentially tell two different stories at the exact same time. And that does show more technique from Coppola. Because this film shows Vito's growth to the stature that we saw him at in the first film. His growth is paralleled with his eventual son and essentially is a reminder of how innocent Michael was at the beginning of the first film. Similarly to how innocent Vito was at the start of his story. And I think that the ending scene of this movie shows that Michael actually fought against his family's objection to him joining the army. He was a rebel to what his family wanted for him. Him being the youngest, he had the ability to make his own choices in life. And he chose to go into the military as he questions the family business. And this is different from his older two brothers who had to grow up while Vito was still getting himself established. Whereas Michael grew up at a point when Vito was already established in New York City. As shown when he actually goes to Sicily as a young boy for Vito to extract his revenge. He's such an innocent child that doesn't really get to see the bad sides of the Corleone family. Whereas the older two brothers saw that and obviously so did Tom as well. And this again supports the idea that that they started off in the first film where Michael was actually Vito's most beloved son as he really never wanted Michael to be a part of that business. He wanted him to become something different than himself. He is that typical father and parent that really just works hard as he can to make sure that his children don't have to go through what he went through. Yes, he's not a typical father in the way he goes about that, but at the end of the day, he's still trying to help Michael go about and have a so-called normal life. And again, irony comes into play when Vito pushes his son away from the business, actually brought him closer in the end and made him the most ruthless and immoral Don of the family. And Michael changed from a hero in the eyes of the family and many patriots into a monster. Similar to his father, he, as shown in the second film, he attempts to not involve his loved ones in the family business. He tries to keep things business and not personal, which obviously sometimes makes him do terrible 
unbearable things. And in the sequel, we see him wait for his mother to die so that he can kill his brother who betrayed him. He keeps all things personal out of it. He knows that Frito's betrayal will make him look weak. And even though Frito is his brother, he knows that he has to do this. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. We see the repercussions of that in the third film, and I'll get to that in a little bit, but in one of the most powerful and heartbreaking scenes of this movie, he hugs his brother at the funeral of his mother in the previous scene in a way to show that he somewhat has forgiven him. And even so, he sends his bodyguard to kill him. And it's, again, just keeping it business and not personal. But here's the thing, Michael is now a stronger Don than his father ever was. and really has become something that his father wasn't. And ironically, again, this is what Vito wanted all along, but not in this way. And now he's living alone, being the last Corleone brother alive. So Coppola felt that these first two films had told the complete Corleone saga and really intended part three to be an epilogue to the first two films. So his and Puzo's original title for this film was The Death of Marco Corleone, which Paramount Pictures rejected. And in short, this film basically concludes the story of Michael who attempts to legitimize his criminal empire and more on the details in a little bit, but they release this so-called third film on December 25th, 1990. I say it again, what a great Christmas movie. When it was released, it made $136.8 billion and it was nominated for seven Academy Awards including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Andy Garcia, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Art Direction for Sets, Best Music, and Song. And it is the only film in the entire series not to have Al Pacino nominated for an Academy Award. It did receive generally positive reviews with critics mostly praising Pacino's performance and the screenplay. However, they criticize the convoluted plot and also Sofia Coppola's performance. Currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 68% rating after 63 critic reviews and a 60% audience score based on about 261 user ratings. The critic consensus states that, quote, the final installment of the Godfather saga recalls its predecessor's power when it's strictly business, but underwhelming performances and confused tonality brings less closure to the Corleone story, end quote. Metacritic has has, after 19 critic reviews, a 60 out of 100 rating with a 7.7 .7 user score after 509 ratings. So fast forward to September 2020 when it was announced that a recut version of the film would have a limited theatrical release in December of 2020 with new edits and a new title. And according to Coppola, The third film Mario Puzo and I, when we wrote it, had called it The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. I have re-edited it and I have given it what really isn't a new title, but rather the original title, Coda the death of Michael Corleone. In musical terms, a coda is sort of like an epilogue. It's a summing up, and that's what we intended the movie to be. You'll see a film which has a different beginning, has a different ending. Many scenes throughout have been repositioned, and the picture has been given, I think, a new life, which does, in fact, act as an illumination of what the two films meant. So Coppola removed the threequel stigma by renaming it The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. Yeah, 
yes, that title is a mouthful. And I'm not sure why they couldn't just call it the death of Michael Corleone like they originally wanted, but whatever. So the new film's version is now 158 minutes compared to the 162 minutes of the original cut. So similarly to the original cut of this film, Michael is now in his 60s and tries to run the family business in a more respectable manner by bailing out the Vatican's financially embarrassed bank. He now has become a businessman instead of a crime boss. However, Michael is then drawn back into mob violence because he gets involved between the boss of a casino he sold off and his nephew Vincent Corleone played by Garcia who is the bastard son of Sonny, Michael's brother, whom Michael obviously sides with. This obviously leads to many deaths but Michael also realized that the supposedly legitimate world of business and politics is actually equally bad to what he was doing or potentially worse. So his acts essentially become a key role in a fictionalized versions of two real life events. The 1978 death of Pope John Paul I and the 1982 murder of the Vatican connected banker Roberto Calvi. So both real and fictional versions of John Paul I reigned for a very short time before being found dead in their bed. The media states that he was planning a reform and the main suspect in both of these situations was the Archbishop who was the head of the Vatican Bank though they did look a little different in real life compared to the movie. The death of the Swiss banker mirrors the fate of the Italian head of the Banco Ambrosiano and he was found hanging under Blackfriars Bridge in London in 1982 and it wasn't unclear whether it was suicide or murder until recently when Italian courts actually ruled the latter. So this film has ambition and reach and it does tell a good epilogue to the Corleone story. Michael continues to pine for his estranged wife Kay again played by Diane Keaton while their grown children make decisions that somewhat go against his wishes. His son Anthony played by Frank D'Ambrosio wants to leave law school to pursue music while his daughter Mary played by Sofia Coppola is falling for the hothead Vincent who is a gangster who is pretty much very similar to his father Sonny and this is kind of the life that Michael wanted to leave behind and then also he's Mary's cousin I wonder if George R. Martin got his inspiration from this I need to tell you something you have to swear it before I tell you I swear it I swear it and since he's the bastard son of Sonny, so that relationship is just odd in general. But anyway, so again, in the new version, the story is basically identical. However, the small changes do help the film. In the beginning, Coppola gets rid of the papal knighting of Michael and replaces it with an in-chambers discussion between Michael and the Archbishop, which kind of sets the stage for his contribution to the Vatican Bank. In the middle of the film, Coppola got rid of the scene between Michael and the aged Don Altobello, but the biggest re-edit is the ending, which I will cover at the end of this review. And if you dislike the original cut, you may not get much more out of this, but I really think it's better because even with it being a shorter film, because like a good haircut, it makes a difference. So the opening sequence gives a much better and more effective introduction to the story. It demonstrates how wealthy the Corleone's now 
now are. We don't really know why this is. However, we do know that the deal with the Vatican will make Michael one of the most wealthiest people in the world. And this scene is contrasted to the opening of the first film with the funeral director. The difference is that the funeral director was seeking justice after chasing the American dream. And here the meeting is meant to basically have Italy and everyone involved with this deal benefiting from those who got their money in America. As with the original two films, there are still some really fantastic scenes, such as when Michael is looming over Joey Zaza in their first confrontation, or the death stares between Michael and his daughter when Vincent pushes her away on Michael's orders, and the, the attempted hit job on Vincent, the mob hit in the ballroom, and then Pacino's deliverance of... Just when I thought I was out. They pulled me back in. Pacino's portrayal is excellent as ever, though it definitely can be seen that he is older than his prior outings, and it is definitely the weaker of the three portrayals of this character. However, it's still really, really good. The direction by Coppola is also just as good as the first two films. He keeps his style of romantic classicism with grandiose and professionalism. The difference between this film and the first two films isn't its style, rather it's the focus of the film. The first two were made during the Vietnam War and also Watergate and essentially showing that the best of us can fall so far and that everything is not as it seems. There are things happening behind closed doors. The Watergate scandal essentially stemmed from Nixon's administration trying to cover up its involvement in a break-in of the Democratic National Committee, which eventually led to Nixon's resignation as president. And in Coppola's world, it's the Italian mafia. Though, like I said about the first film and the novel, it is is somewhat based in truth of the Italian Mafia being in control of a lot of political things going on in the United States. In this film, he does show that things are happening behind closed doors, but it's concentrated more specifically to the Catholic Church. Coppola takes on the Catholic religion and confronts it in the same way he confronted American society in the prior two films. This confrontation of the church hierarchy and its apparent mediated relationship to God God is also contrasted to Kay as she is the daughter of a Baptist minister and somewhat acts as Michael's conscience. This movie then becomes an analysis of faith similar to that of a Martin Scorsese film. But by the end of the movie, Michael sees legitimacy of his family business as an illusion. So this is also the first film to focus solely on Michael. The first two films do focus on him for sure, but the, his father is also being looked at. Here, the film focuses on how this life that Michael chose hits back at him after all of his dirty deeds. He confesses finally to his dirty deeds of murder of a lot of people, including his brother Frito, and him finally coming to terms with the priest is absolutely heartbreaking, and you finally see how much all of this has hurt him. I, um, <clears throat> betrayed my wife. Go on, my son. betrayed myself. I killed men. And I ordered men to be killed. Go on, my son. I ordered the death of my brother. He injured me. I killed my mother's son. I killed my father's son. Your sins are terrible. And it is just that you suffer. 
shown that Michael possibly may be able to move on past his family business. He has Vincent becoming the new Don, even though he is as or more reckless than Sonny. He is reconnecting with Kay. He is doing some shady stuff, but he's now able to fully appreciate his son's singing capabilities. And it seems like it's going to be a happy ending. But like the priest says, it's just that he will suffer for this. And then the movie shows the death of a child and the guilt that comes with a parent's grief. And this makes the story a much more personal one as Coppola and his wife, the writer and filmmaker Eleanor Coppola, had their son Giancarlo die in a boating accident in 1986. And Mary's death is at the climax of the movie with not really much that happens after it. The film then gets to the end with its most drastic change. The aged Michael is sitting alone in Sicily and he doesn't die. He has to live on alone. He now has lost everything. His father, his mother, his brothers, his wives, and his children. We know that Connie most likely is involved with the family business and he doesn't want to be that anymore. And same with Vincent and any other living family member. All of his debts have been settled, but he has no family left. Another difference in this scene is that he only thinks of his daughter and not of Kay and Apollonia because she was the last person to actually love him and now she's gone. So now what? He's essentially cursed to live on alone with time and blood on his hands for him to just think about his past. After all that he did, he really has nothing to look forward to in life but death of which won't come for a while. And this concludes the tragic downfall of Michael Corioni in perhaps the perfect way. At the beginning of this story, he was a hero with a large family and loved ones and the most important child of it, but very little power. Now, he's the most powerful, but he's alone. Atonement is beyond him and he loses his family as soon as he's able to give them what they need. And I really love this new ending because frankly, it made it a so much better film overall. And like I said, it completed the character's downfall. Then we get a title that wishes us Sentiani, which means for long life. And then the title card ironically says, a Sicilian never forgets. Similar to what his father father said in the prior film. And with him living on past this, it makes the three films up to that point feel like a memory to this old version of Michael. And frankly, it is an almost perfect story now. However, I will say that there was one piece of dialogue in this new film that bothered me. I remember the time that you came to my parents' house and you told me about the family business and how you're never going to have anything to do with it. You sounded like Tony. That was a lot like Tony. This isn't exactly how it happened in the first film and it was at Connie's wedding. That's my family, Kate. It's not me. But maybe he told her some other time and that's just retconning it. So this may be a nitpick, but I do think it shows some weakness in the writing. Sofia Coppola isn't as bad as I remember her being when I first watched the movie in both this one and also the original. While not great, I think she still feels natural as the daughter helping her father, which is precisely what Coppola was doing because Winona Ryder had to leave unexpectedly so Sofia stepped in to help her father who 
was in a bind. So she comes off as innocent in her portrayal as Mary because she really wasn't much of an actor at the time, which works as Mary is innocent in the Corleone crime world. She did nothing but really love her father and her cousin. Yes, the latter is still weird. And I will say maybe the ending feels a little rushed and it just is so drastic getting to that point. But again, such, such a small little thing because there's really so much that a recut of an older film can do. You can't really take out a weird love story, though luckily that is not the main part of the story. So this film certainly is better than it has ever been before. If you are a fan of any of the Godfather films, I suggest this film is worth a watch, especially after you watch the first two films. While comparably to the first two, it is the weakest. However, this recut does bring back the Godfather series into the best trilogy of all time conversation. After I watched this movie, I looked up Rotten Tomatoes and it has a 90% after 39 critic reviews and a 77% after 26 user ratings. So not very much. The critic consensus says that this film pulls the audience back into Francis Ford Coppola's epic gangster saga with a freshly, albeit slightly, edited version of its final installment. And Metacritic has a 76 based on 12 critic reviews and an 8 user rating after 4 as of this recording. So not a lot of people have seen this movie. But frankly, I will tell you, you need to watch this movie. So what are your thoughts on The Godfather and The Godfather series, this new cut? Let me know. Hit me up on social media. The former review is on Facebook, Twitter, and The Gram. I post many things, including trailer reactions, so go check those out. The handle is all the same. It's at The Former Review. Feel free to also check out BackseatDirectors.com, where I work with a big team to put out movie reviews and also editorials. Again, that's BackseatDirectors.com. Please also subscribe to The Former Review. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're now on Amazon. Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, honestly, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast, we have our content there. Also, I'm always wanting to grow and improve, so please leave a review and what you want to hear because I really do this for you all. I see the numbers and I really appreciate everyone supporting me and talking to me about movies because frankly, that's what it's all about. And for anyone who has supported me on a financial basis, thank you again. And if you want to help support on a financial basis, please go to anchor.fm forward slash the minus sign formal minus sign review and click support this podcast. And honestly, any donation is appreciated. Thank you all again for tuning in. And until next time, wear your mask, wash your hands, stay safe and take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the formal review. Cheers. And we'll see you next time.